Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Zauk, and today I sit down with Rana Yared, partner at Balterton Capital, one of Europe's most successful venture capital firms. Rana is a proud Wharton alum who joined Goldman Sachs after graduating and stayed for the next 14 years, becoming one of Goldman's youngest partners along the way. At Balterton, she focuses on fintech investments, having previously helped lead Goldman's principal strategic investments across the US and UK. In today's episode, Rana and I discuss her long journey from Wharton to Goldman to Balderton and a surprise stop for a master's in securities analysis. And no, not the kind of securities you're thinking about. We also discuss the secret sauce of Balderton, the Balderton Collective, and their fantastic track record, the two fintech verticals she's most excited about. Don't worry, it's not crypto. The three key things on her investor checklist and what is an immediate deal breaker for her her investment in Uncork while at Goldman and Flywire while at Balderton, why she's so excited about Europe and Balderton's new liquidity fund, and a fun rapid-fire round including her best pastry, the best restaurant in London, and her crucial advice to founders. Without further ado, let's get started. Hi, Rana, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. It's great to have you on and wonderful to have such a renowned Wharton alum on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. It's obviously a pleasure to be here and wonderful to get to know you as a part of getting ready for this podcast. Absolutely. So for our listeners, Rana was featured in Wharton Magazine in 2019 as one of seven alum that are leading the future of finance alongside titans such as the former head of Square Capital, Jackie Reeses, who was just featured on the podcast last month, the CIO of Soros Fund Management, and many others. But before this incredible success, you started just like any other bright-eyed, competitive Wharton undergrad that I see roaming the halls here every day. So can you walk us through your background, starting with coming to Wharton and then eventually rising the ranks to become one of Goldman's youngest MDs and partners? Sure, I'd love to. And I really, I wish I could say that I was as focused as the majority of the bright-eyed, bushy-tailed Wharton undergrads. You know, I, I came a little bit lost to Wharton in the sense that I loved Penn. I was in a math and science program in high, high school. I have immigrant parents and Wharton was the best of the four schools in their minds at Penn. And so of course I would apply to it. And so I did, and I got in. And then I remember sitting in my management 100 class, which is the compulsory course for undergrads. And everyone is saying what they want to be. And I thought, well, I just want to get a PhD. <laughs> so, a PhD. You know, a PhD. And you know, the, the gaffes kind of continued in a serendipitous way. It's now kind of like, joke at GS that I told my first boss when he asked me what I wanted to do in 10 years time, I said, I'd love to own a patisserie. And he didn't withdraw the offer in the same moment, which I think is like my first Goldman miracle as I refer to it as. So I think my career has been one of great serendipity. It's also been one of exploration, right? So I've taken every step less because I had a plan and more because I really enjoyed what I was doing. And so I had really the blessing to be able to just carry on in that direction. Absolutely. And I think bright-eyed and bushy-tailed is maybe too generous of what I see. The Wharton undergrads look like they are fierce and very competitive. And some of the ones I meet, it's their freshman year. And they're like, you know, I'm going to intern at Goldman my junior year, make it to Blackstone my first year out of college, launch a hedge fund, and then come back to Warren for my MBA. So That's absolutely <laughs> what they do. And in this Management 100 meeting I alluded to, I remember having a piece of paper writing down, look up hedge fund, 
look up private equity, <laughs> look up investment banking, because I had no idea what any of those three were. So going to Goldman, so how did you find your way there? What were your first roles there? And of course, you know, just climbing analyst, associate VP and above. I was really lucky. So as I said to you, I thought I wanted to get a PhD. I did on-campus recruiting at only five firms because some friends said, maybe you should leave yourself some optionality. I ended up getting accepted to the investment banking division at Goldman Sachs. And one of my interviewers was a woman called Megan Taylor, who ended up as COO of the investment management division until she recently retired. And she pulled me out of the generalist IBD pool and tapped me to be in a team called Firmwide Strategy for my first two years, which you should think of it as fig bankers, where the client is Goldman Sachs. And so I functionally trained as a FIG IBD banker. And in those days, you, know, you didn't have the option to stay your third year in the role. They wanted you to go rotate, go to another team, go to another geography, go to another something. And so you know, at the encouragement of Megan and Tim, that's what I did. And I ended up taking a role on the venture investment team in sales and trading called Principal Strategic Investments. And I took it in London and it was a one-year rotation. And I stayed five years. And I wow. think I totally like found my myself there in terms of like where my spot at Goldman is. I love the fast paced nature. I love that every day was different. I love the learning. And for me, being a principal versus an agent actually changed the way I felt about my long-term career at GS, that I could make one on there. Again, enormously blessed with two fantastic bosses, long-time partners at GS names Phil Highlander and Robert Markwick, who are extremely supportive and let me do so much as, as a young person, supported me as I got my master's degree at LSC while, while I was working, and then ultimately supported my move back to the US and making MD. And Robert was even around you know, to help um, sponsor me for partner, which is just fantastic. Awesome. And then last question on your background before moving on. This master's at LSE, was it just kind of scratching the PhD itch that you were hoping to get and closing the loop? Or what was the reason for pursuing this degree while working? Totally. It was scratching the itch. So my degree is in security studies. And you know, people say to me, oh, you've got a master's degree in stocks and bonds. And I go, no, I have a master's degree in nukes and bombs. And oh, so that it was kind of security. Totally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was absolutely like scratching the the itch um, in the field that I would have probably wanted to get a PhD in. And so now I kind of ticked that box at a lesser scale, obviously. Absolutely. So at Goldman Sachs, you led their principal strategic investments team in New York and London, often referred to as PSI. Can you talk a little bit more about what PSI did and how it was structured and perhaps, you know, kind of through the lens of a certain investment that you made? Very happy to. And of course, you know, my information is now a year stale because PSI, while I was still there, was merged, taken out of trading. It was merged into another team and moved into the merchant bank, which has since I have left also merged into the asset management division. So for the listeners, keep in mind that there's about 12 months of movement that's happened since I last was uh, roaming the halls at GS. So PSI was a team that was focused on venture investing in fintech and originally in fintech and later also in enterprise tech. And the lens through which we saw financial technology as strategic was that all financial technology was strategic because you never kind of knew what avenue Goldman would eventually end up going in. 
And that gave us a great deal of latitude. And then as we really got deeper into that business, we also learned that Goldman was a major buyer of um, enterprise technology, but more important than just being a buyer, we were actually, the former we was actually at the, the cutting edge of networking, of cybersecurity, you know, of network architecture. And so as a result of that, huge amount of enterprise tech also became strategically dubbed, let's say, sometime around 2013. And so that virtually allowed us to invest in anything that any other major VC would invest in under those two branches. And then through the lens of uh, one of the investments, you know, I'll mention one that you might be familiar with given some of the characters there. So I had the pleasure of making the original investment in Uncork. I did the Series A. And it's just truly a serendipitous story also. So a good friend of mine who had been longtime partner at KPMG went over to Uncork as their head of financial services and you know, asked me to come and meet the CEO um, just to talk about how they should think about fundraising. Literally, their offices were across the street from my apartment in, in New York City. So I crossed the street. I went. We talked. I thought the technology was amazing, maybe too good to be true. And so I asked them to build me like a use case while I was sitting there. And they did. And I walked out of the room saying, wait, I don't want to help you figure out how you can raise money from someone else. I want to raise the money. Um, and the company was obviously Uncork. They, um, are, they are a low-code platform that was originally used to help automate the workflow in the insurance application process. You know, now they have a multitude of, of use cases ranging from other financial services use cases, let's say onboarding and, and asset management, exceptions management, but also they ended up, as is publicly known, being the technology that underpins the city of New York's coronavirus track and trace tool. Yeah. Yeah, it's an awesome company, one that we follow very closely. A lot of Wharton alum, and of course, I am a former KPMG consultant, and I think Uncork is probably 20% built by former KPMG. And we just had Jane Tran, their head of solutions, on the podcast. The episode will be coming out anytime now. She is fantastic. Moving now to Balderton Capital, where you currently are, one of the most successful VCs in Europe. Can you tell us about the firm and your team and Ultimately, what brought you to them after such a successful career at Goldman? Sure. So it's worth just mentioning to you, I've known Bolton for a long time. One of my partners is himself a Goldman partner alumnus from another vintage, I'll just say, and was quite close with my first boss in London. And it's through that relationship that I got to know Balderton. And you know, said first boss at Goldman in London would say to me that you have to take the opportunity of a lifetime in the lifetime of the opportunity. And that's what Balderton was for me. You know, there are a handful of investing firms, VCPE or otherwise, that are equal partnerships. Balderton is one of them. And the reason for that is because it used to be the international arm of Benchmark, the big West Coast VC. And so all of the ethos around equal partnership, equal economics, equal voting is the legacy that we have kept. And that is one of the secret sauces of the firm and what so far has made it just an absolute pleasure to work at. The second thing to mention when thinking about Bolton is, as you said, very successful early stage investor. The com- we see 4,000 companies per year. Wow. It's insane the reach that, that we have. And I think that that reach is, is a function of the quality of relationships that my partners and principals and associates have built long before I joined, but also a function of having made the right choices in where to invest such that 
our founders recommend us to other founders, which is amazing. And then two years ago, the firm made a decision to extend beyond just early stage and start doing some late stage investing with what we called the liquidity fund. And that was the first secondary fund in Europe. And what we learned from doing that fund was that the reputation that Ballerton had as a company builder from cradle to exit, no matter what that exit is, even resonated with the companies that we had passed on in the Series A, and they sought us back out, which means my colleagues were passing in the most respectful of ways possible. And again, like it's not surprising when you think about the shape of my partners. So myself and Tim, the partner from Another Vintage, are the two financiers among the six GPs. But you know, functionally, the other four are operators. Two were founders who IPO'd their companies, one of which was sold to SAP for $7 billion. And then the other two were senior operators at Google and, and Yahoo. And so when I compare us to other venture firms, you know, most of them look all like me coming from a finance background, right. but actually we look very different. We look like operators who invest and that's part of the secret sauce of Balderton. Yeah, that's great. And awesome always, I think, for any founder to see a VC that has both this operator and financier lens. So another thing that I noticed about Balderton on their website is this Balderton Collective concept. Can you talk a little bit about what this is and the value that it can add to your portfolio companies? Absolutely. So another innovation we're extremely proud of. So I've already mentioned our most recent one, which was the secondary fund in in Europe. When we launched the collective or our platform team, we were actually the first platform team to be created in Europe. And that allowed us to provide a great deal of value to our CEO. So the, the collective is what it sounds like. It is the bringing together of all of our CEOs, but also other C-suite roles. Um, so when a company joins Balderton, they get welcomed in, they have access to our head of talent, they have access to head of marketing, our head of finance, in total 15 people who work for the port- portfolio, but they also importantly have access to each other. And so we have a CTO collective where you know, CTOs will ask each, each other, hi, I have the following problem. Has anyone had to solve this and how did you solve it? And suddenly they solve it for each other. So it's not just classically the platform team doing things for the company. It's also, you know, facilitating a forum where the companies learn from each other. And we're told that that is actually the most valuable part of it. And so once a year, we bring all of our CEOs together for the CEO collective. We obviously missed it in 2020, but we will be reprising it in 2021. (laughs) And um, it is a much sought after event, as I am told. I'm looking forward to my first. (laughs) That's awesome. Is it going to be in person? Will it be in London or somewhere else? Right now, the plan is in person and we usually host it in Bavaria. So I would love to learn about an investment of yours at Balderton. Can you talk about, you know, what Balderton is looking for in a company and then maybe a process just from source to sign for a specific Balderton portfolio company? So I'll talk just a little bit about the process and then we'll say about the investment. So grounded in the process is this concept of we are an equal partnership. And mm-hmm. so the six GPs together functionally own the firm. And so what that means is like we have to collectively make our own decisions. What it also means is that the success of the investment of one of my partners is as important to me as a success of one of my own investments because they impact me economically in the exact same way. This actually allows us to align the incentives that then bring the full partnership to the disposal of every single company. 
And so the way that we make an investment is that a partner will, will sponsor it. The investing team will come and present it. Prior to that, the investment team will have probably have two or three other partners actually meet the company and the CEO, usually ones who have like knowledge in the underlying subject. So my partner, Rob, will bring me in on a fintech company because it makes sense to the two of us with Tim right. do a lot of the fintech, whether or not I'm a sponsoring partner or, or not. And similarly, I would bring Rob in, you know, if I'm looking at a fintech company. Eventually, we end up going to committee. This is very fast, by the way. All this can be like a two-week process. And um, we need to have what I'll call the conviction of the love in order to do the deal. So we don't want kind of deals that go through. Everyone's like, yeah, I like it. <laughs> we want you know the conviction to be, I love it. Right. You can vote that you only like it, or yeah. you can choose to dislike the deal. What we want to avoid is like a lukewarm walking into a deal. And so we force ourselves to really assess whether we are loves or whether we're just likes. And again, like that helps bolster the concept of like deep investiture in every single deal that we end up doing. And then from my point of view, you know, I've only done one transaction since I've been at Balderton. That is a function of just the physical number of months I've been there, but also I actually took two months of maternity leave. And so uh, in total, there's not been that much time. And, you know, there, the particular case is a company called Flywire. I would say it's probably a little bit off like the way I would normally do an investment because it happens to be one that I knew very, very well from Goldman. It was one of the last investments that I saw through there. And so when some shares became available, it was something that I had jumped on and was very happy that the CEO's point of view was company doesn't want to spend time getting to know someone new, but we're very happy to work with you because you already know us. And it was exactly as I had said to you, brought in the other partners who knew something about fintech, also brought in the partners who knew something about consumer because ultimately Flywire is a payments platform used by universities and healthcare. And um, so they interact with the individual and met the management team and made a decision that we were, you know, I was collectively, we were all as excited as I originally was on the Goldman side nearly a year prior. And so you had mentioned, you know, you want to love a company in order to invest. You mentioned this company here, but what traits are you looking for when a new company comes across your desk that might make you fall in love with this investment? Is there a personal checklist that you work through or any kind of deal makers or deal breakers that you're keeping an eye out for? Yeah. So my number one on the checklist is the management team. And everyone says that, but like being able to actually explain what you do. So one of the deal breakers mm -hmm. for me is when the management team, when asked to explain what their company does, responds back to me, it's complicated. You know, that's both oh. a sign of they can't explain it, but also yeah. arrogance because the undertone is it's too complicated for you to understand. Right. Right. Like Which that. is probably like a bad sign about how they want to work with investors on a go forward basis. The other thing that is on my personal checklist, which I know is not on every investor's checklist, is I really like to invest in companies that have what I call industrial purpose. So a reason for existing. Okay. You know, I will probably never be the person that gets excited about some like random children's video game that lets them buy Barbie dolls or like I'm making stuff up, right? right? Because I kind of don't see like the industrial staying power of that. And I know that companies, you know, have made a ton of money investing in those. I have a hard time connecting with those kind of, of companies, but companies that solve real problems are the ones that I connect with the, the most. And you can see that in kind of the history of where I've invested. And then the third thing on my checklist is the obvious one, which is, do they have the ability to be the market leader? 
And when I think about that from a European lens, you know, I tend to think about, can they be the global winner out of Europe? Because I'm not that interested in investing, and neither is Balderton, by the way, investing in Mm -hmm. European-only winners. We want to invest in European companies that have the ability to be global winners. Right. So maybe you miss out on, you know, the next Roblox, but there are quite a few amazing investments in Goldman's portfolio and now Balderton's. So I don't know if you're losing too much sleep over it. So we touched on this briefly, but there's just been such an incredible rise in fintech over the last few years. It's just been soaring in 2020 and 2021. New founders rushing in. The mafias of companies like Square and Stripe have started leaving to start their own companies. So much capital flooding in. Valuations are soaring and more. So from your perspective, you know, in this massive space, what are the trends or sub-verticals that you're most excited about and most focused on? Maybe I'll just make a general non-fintech related comment on this, which is to say, I am really excited about Europe. And obviously that is why I got up and I moved to Europe from the US to join Balderton. (laughs) And the reason why I'm generally excited about Europe is because I think that there is like a, a barbell of capital here. So there's a ton of early stage capital. And there's a ton of late stage capital, but there isn't capital that generally bridges that. And so there has been historically a need for companies to leave Europe in order to continue to grow. And that is obviously disappointing for the European ecosystem, but also presents a huge opportunity, which is if you can be that trusted confidant of companies as they grow and be physically present to them, it's going to make a really big difference for them. Why do I mention this as a preamble? Because there are certain trends in fintech that I think are like extremely unique to Europe and should actually be addressed from here. And in some respect, like redomiciling them to the US diminishes the insight that the companies continue to have on those problems. So for example, payments is a theme that I'm focused on. And I think that Europe is uniquely positioned. And the reason is because there have always been more cross-border payments here. The problems have always been bigger and people cross borders and therefore use currencies with less kind of thinking about the fact that they're doing it than we do in the US. And so as, as a result of that, you've seen a lot of the extremely valuable payments companies come out of Europe. So Adyen needs no introduction, obviously. Revolut in the Balderton portfolio. Think of it as like Venmo souped up for foreign exchange, right? Originally for the traveler, but now offers a suite of financial products. Go Cardless, which is a B2B payments business. And lest we forget, Flywire was actually founded in Spain before it redomiciled to Boston. And so there is like this pedigree here in Europe that focuses on payments. And it's a trend that I'm focused on, that Balton is focused on, and one that we think, you know, should have edge out of Europe for global success. And then the second one is insurance. You know, this is the largest reinsurance market. It's the largest insurance market in the world. And you know, a couple of um, key players lo- located in, let's say, Switzerland, uh, Munich, and London cover the vast majority of the market. And yet, pretty consistently, the view is that the market really hasn't evolved. Whether it's from the front end, you know, there hasn't been like the lemonade or policy genius evolution here, really, or from the back end, meaning there hasn't been something like what Uncork is doing. However, there's a lot of room for, for that. And I think we're well on our way. So we recently announced at Balderton, the most recent financing round of one of our early stage companies called Zigo. And Zigo is an auto insurer for commercial auto based out of London. Very excited you know, to have them be the newest unicorn in the Bullerton portfolio. And um, they are a window into 
what can happen in the largest insurance and reinsurance market in the world. And so given that we have the experience with Zigo, I have the experience with Uncork, and my partner David has the experience with, with Lemonade when he was at SoftBank, you know, we think that we're pretty well positioned to action this trend. So then when you put together these theses around payments and insurance, et cetera, how do you go about then sourcing these companies and thinking about how you want to deploy capital? Like what made you think and get in touch with Zigo? So Zigo was not one of my, my investments. It was actually done by my, my colleague, Rob, long before I had arrived. And you know, as a firm, we are thematic in the way that we think about in, in investing. But sourcing basically happens in a couple of ways. So one, we have people on the ground in Germany, in the Nordics, in France, in Spain, and in the UK. And we cover Europe that way. And um, one of the big differences between Europe and the US is that you have to really do the shoe leather work, boots on the ground, physically in the location versus what tends to happen in the US, which is the companies go to Sand Hill Road, to University Avenue, and then stop in like Union Square, right? In Europe, you have to go to Berlin, to Munich, to Dusseldorf, to Lyon and Paris and London and so forth. And if you, you don't, you will miss the next great Decacorn, as it's being called now. And we don't want to be in the business of missing Decacorns, right? So that's kind of a a general comment that I'll make there on sourcing. It's bottom up. The other one is one I already mentioned to you, which is that the best compliment that we're paid is when our CEOs introduce us to others. And I would say the second best compliment that we're paid is when one of our former co-investors introduces us to one of their companies because they think that we can add something more than just money. And that is, I think, a great compliment also, because there is no shortage of money out there, Europe, US or otherwise, but there sometimes is a shortage of additive investors who are really trusted confidants of the management team and who are also viewed as additive board members. And you know, I'd like to think that we abolish and are all of those things. And then final question, I noticed one trend that was not mentioned was crypto, blockchain, and distributed ledger technology. Some publications online had rumored that you were spearheading some crypto work at Goldman before departure. I'm curious to see your thoughts currently on the crypto space in general, as well as DLT in blockchain, you know, their role in financial services and potentially in Europe. So the Balderton view on crypto, I think is not dissimilar from the view that I I came with, which is that as a venture GP, we want to be invested in infrastructure that helps as those trends get expressed throughout the market, rather than say, make a particular bet on an NFT or a particular currency or like whatever else, because that is not what we're specialists in, right? We are specialists in company building and infrastructure plays allow for that company building. And so that's where we generally will tend to um, focus. I did have, you know, both, I think the luck and and the pleasure of being very deeply involved in what Goldman was doing up until the time I was there. And I think that that's helped inform the view that I have around focusing on strong infrastructure uh, now that I'm at at Balderton. Got it. Well, Rana, in closing, you have entered the final round of the episode, which is the rapid fire question round. We've got about 10 or so questions for you, Max, 10 or so second reply. If you're ready, let me know. All right, let's do it. Rapid fire. All right, here we go. You had mentioned that you wanted to open a patisserie. What is your best pastry? Apple tarts. All right. Who is your fintech hero? I don't know. (laughs) How about non-Balderton portfolio company, non-Balderton related, so you're not playing favorites? Right right now, interestingly, Adina Friedman at NASDAQ. 
And so I don't know if you count her as fintech, but I think NASDAQ is a tech tech company. Mm -hmm. She obviously is like a trailblazer for women in financial services. She also is so thoughtful when you which she's really like in- inquisitive when she wants to learn something. Mm-hmm. She listens to people around her. I mean, everything about her is what like I aspire to be. So she is my non-Goldman, non-Balderton fintech hero. Love that answer. And she is currently slated to come on the podcast in another month. Very excited for that conversation. Oh, that's great. Well done. Yeah, she's great. And Vanderbilt alum, as am I. So very excited to meet her. Okay. Now, so we just had Charles Birnbaum of Bessemer on the podcast, and he talked about his own anti-portfolio, including missing on Plaid's Series A. Are there any companies that are in your anti-portfolio? There are, but I don't have like deep regret, right? Meaning that, you know, at, at the time, it felt like the right decision. It wasn't like, oh, I couldn't get it through investment committee or there was a miss. I mean, my big regret was I saw the Series A of Revolut at Goldman and we didn't do it. Oh, that's tough. <laughs> but luckily now I'm I'm at Balderton, which you know is uh, was the first institutional shareholder at at Revolut, and so I got to see it. Great. Now another fintech question. So Public.com is a company that used to be on the podcast. They are a Robinhood competitor, and instead of pay for order flow, they have moved to an optional tipping model for trades for their users to pay. What are your thoughts on this business idea? Thanks. Very interesting idea. I'm not sure that it in the long run builds a profitable business model for public.com. And I would personally contend that probably the right business model is, is neither, right? So paying for order flow has the ills that are, I think, well-known and well-discussed. well, well discussed, And so I won't kind of rehash them here. Tipping relies on people thinking that there's value and ultimately like, you know, people might do what we heard was happening on Instacart during the, the pandemic, which is like failing to tip even though the service was right. delivered. So the answer is probably a small paid model where you deliver really high service and people are happy to pay that. And that probably is the happy medium. Great. Now, last few. First one, what advice do you have for a founder looking to raise you know, their Series A? Have a real purpose and focus on how you can solve a problem and be yourself rather than being what you think the funders want to see in you because that inauthenticity becomes very clear. All right. How about London's best restaurant? They're all closed at this exact moment which is a bummer, but um, my favorite restaurant in London that is my favorite ethnicity of food, which is Lebanese, is a one called Ishbilia down in Knightsbridge. And then my favorite place in London, full stop, is Core by Claire Smith up in Notting Hill. And it's one of these like super special places that you go to for like anniversaries or making partner or whatever else. Not a place you go to all the time, but it is a wonderful, wonderful place. Awesome. And I'm Lebanese as well. So I absolutely love Lebanese food. I love Soraya in Philadelphia for all of our Wharton listeners. And of course, Ilili and Almayez in New York. Although I don't know if they're still open. I will have to check. I don't know. This is the big question now. We don't know if our favorite places will ever reopen again. I know it's going to be a scary reveal later this year. So final question on that note, let's say it's the end of 2021. The whole world is vaccinated and back to normal. What is the first big post-COVID vacation? Uh, My husband and I will go to South Africa as our first big one. So we had it uh, planned for the end of March of 2020. As soon as I had finished Goldman and started my my gardening leave, it never happened. It was also a uh, a trip that we were taking my, my parents on with us. And so uh, we will do that trip in March of 2022 now Mm -hmm. and very much looking forward to it. 
Uh, yeah, that was actually the last place that I was in right before the COVID pandemic. It was like early March, we're in spring break, and we got there not even two days into the trip, we start seeing the news. And it was yeah, trying to squeeze every last bit before catching the last flight out. Beautiful country, Absolutely. beautiful place. Well, Rana, it was fantastic having you on the Wharton Fintech podcast today. Always great having a Wharton alum on the show. I'm very excited to share this episode with our listeners. It was my pleasure to be here, and thank you for taking the time. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review. And if you're looking for more fintech content, subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton Fintech. There you will find articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I've linked our accounts in the episode description. I would also like to thank our editor, Rafael Ostria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Ryan Zauk.